Hello and welcome to 250, your weekly IMDb Top 250 Movies of All Time podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And this week we're talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Milos Forman's 1975 comedy drama, which is currently ranked the 16th best movie of all time on the list. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's right up there. It is. It's the highest one that we've done, actually, because up until this point, I think Leon was 27. <clears throat> I think that It's a Wonderful Life was 24. So this is as close as we've got to greatness. Yeah. So, Andrew, what did you make of it? I Well, I'd seen it before. I'd enjoyed it. I found it a bit of a bummer today. <laughs> but, <laughs> when you say a bit of a bummer, are you talking, uh, you're talking like in a sort of a, an optimistic sort of way or in a bad film sort of way? Um, no, it was a good film. It's it, it's, <laughs> it's it's just like like it can it can it can kind of get you just a little bit. It does. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I, I remember you you saw this before. When did you see this before? Do you remember the first time you saw this? I've probably seen it more than once. I I, I might have seen it in my teens or early twenties, maybe. Okay, because I actually I remember. When I saw, because I, I, when I was about 11 or 12, I went through a phase of watching the new wave Hollywood films, the sort of the big films of the 70s. Like any 12-year-old. Yeah, any 12-year-old, any, any you, you know how it is, you get hooked on The Godfather and then you ease yourself in, next thing you know, you're watching Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now. No, so I, I watched uh, The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2 and I sort of loved it and I kind of had always liked film and as we talked before in the podcast, my granddad kind of showed me like slasher movies and horror movies and sort of like genre stuff. Hammer and horror. Hammer horror and even, even The Shining, for example, if we're going along the Jack Nicholson route. But I think that uh, when I got about 11 or 12, I, I started hearing things about like 70s Hollywood, which if you remember correctly back in the day when we were younger, you didn't have digital, you didn't have like channels that were devoted to movies or you did and you couldn't pay for them. Um, so you basically were at the at the behest of either VHS copies of films that you had, yeah, or if, television. Like if you had like basic digital, you had kind of TCM and like Turner Classic Movies, yeah. and I think Film Four. Um, Did you? Oh, you 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 had a very privileged upbringing. No, 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 no. This would have been much <laughs> much later. What happened was it was around the time DVDs came out. So what? Two thousand two thousand and one ish. Nineteen seventy five, Darren. Yeah. But that was, that was sort of when I began sort of digging into 70s sort of movies, like the, the good ones that you never see on television because they're never on, say, RT1 or RT2 or whatever. Right. And I remember actually going back and watching a couple of them with my dad, which was a nice little experience for me because I watched, because uh, dad had obviously seen all these the first time around. And when I expressed an interest in them, he kind of wanted to go back and watch a couple of them as well. So I actually have memories of watching like this film, for example, or... Um, what was the other one? The other one was uh, The Deer Hunter with my father as well. You know, occasionally Mooney Family Movie Night would be just myself and my dad. And we'd go, well, we stick on a 70s movie that I haven't seen and the dad quite liked. I remember that's how I that's how I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for the first time, actually. Right. I, I have fond memories of sort of watching this and discovering this. At the same time, you know how there are movies that you recognize are very good and are fantastically well made and are... Like structurally fantastic, like well constructed. They do what they want to do, but yeah. they don't necessarily resonate with you. Like they don't necessarily sort of like like films that are great, but don't necessarily sort of speak to you or have that sort of je ne sais quoi that that elevates them to being like a great movie. Right. I kind of I feel a little bit like that towards this. I have to be honest. Yeah. It 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 has that kind of sort of indie quality of of like e easy rider yeah to it another um jack nicholson jack, jack nicholson Nich yeah or like i guess five easy, easy pieces another jack uh, nicholson yeah. 
But like movies around that time that seem to be kind of... Because we've recently done some movies that were a little older than this. Like our our, our last scheduled movie was what? North by Northwest. Yeah, Hitchcock's yeah. 1959 film, for example. Yeah, which is very polished. Yeah. In comparison to the the kind of rough rough and ready up-and-coming filmmakers of the kind of 70s. Yeah, the sort of the hungry, the young, the eager. Because there's a lot of... You're, you're right when you say... Actually, it's interesting you say polished because a lot of this doesn't feel polished. A lot of this feels improvised. Like, you could be yeah. told that, like, basically a lot of the scenes, including the group... Particularly the group therapy scenes, were largely improvised around questions. Um, and you would believe it. Like, there's yeah. a kind of a loose quality to it. It's like... The film has a very clear structure and point and it knows what it's doing and knows what it's about... But it's also how it's about it is very loose and relaxed. You know? And it, I might be wrong in saying this, but it felt more theatrical than cinematic. Like then, and and this this is this is not an adaptation of the um, novel. Uh, novel. It's an adaptation of the play, which is an adaptation of the novel. I think you are indeed. You're entirely correct here. Like, because there there are no no spoilers. Nothing to to you know sort of spoilery in here to talk about this. Like. The novel, as originally written, and I, I've read it about 10 years ago, I think it was. So yeah. my memory of it may and be a bit hazy. A lot of people have, have, have read the novel. It's, it's about a high school football team. <laughs> and, 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 One uh, last game. Yeah. And and a new, new player arrives. And he radically shakes it up. He takes it to the coach. And I think that when they were looking at adapting Ken Kesey's, they said basically, well, what if we take that concept... And instead of setting it in a high school football team, what if we move it to a psychiatric <laughs> hospital in Oregon? Uh, no, that, that's, that's not the largest adaptational change. The biggest adaptational change is that the original novel is told from the point of view of the chief. Yeah. It's all, um, it's all basically, it's his that's story. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's firsthand, it's subjective. Um, in fact, like, I remember reading it, uh, I would have been about 20-ish, and even 20 years old, having a bit of difficulty trying to make sense of what was going on because it was so subjective and it did kind of challenge the reader to make sense of what was happening. And that's an interesting approach to take in a novel. It doesn't really work in a film. And I think Ken Kesey, who wrote the book in question, actually, he famously dislikes the movie and he dislikes the movie because it abandons the perspective of the chief. But I think it will be very difficult to do that in the context of a movie without having like really awful voiceover and cloying narration. And even just to, to get that sort of subjective quality, like, I think you would lose something. So the film itself, while the novel was a source of inspiration for both the screenplay and in terms of recruiting the cast, all the cast were given copies of it. In terms of recruiting the director, Milos Foreman, he was sent galley proofs of it and he was also sent a book of it. The galley proofs didn't arrive because they were caught by the Czech censor coming in. So he had to wait 10 years until Michael Douglas mailed him a copy of the book to read. How is it relevant that he was Czech? Because it was Eastern Europe and the censors actually read all the mail coming in. Ah, also because his mail Sorry, got I, 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 I was wondering, like, Czech censor, or, is, is, is Darren saying what I think he's saying? And he was. I was trying to make a joke. But no. It, it was, so, okay. Yeah, so basically behind the Iron Curtain. Like, so in terms of production, right, this I was, feel like an idiot. I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, no. I'm not good at these humor bits. I just take all your questions seriously. I feel like I'm the nurse ratchet of this podcast. No, this is this is just an hilarious misunderstanding on my part. I beg your pardon. Um, good. We won't we won't begin with the electroconvulsion therapy yet. No. But basically, the 
what happened was it was written in 1962. It was adapted for stage, which is why actually, if you watch the end credits, the 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 movie is based in 1963. It is indeed good spot, Angie. Yeah, yeah. The news reports cover the Berlin Wall, and they also cover the Alabama bombing as well. Yeah, and the 1963 World Series. Okay, I like that we I like that we got it from two different two different sources. But yes, yeah, it is set in the, it is set roughly around the time the novel was published, and the novel then was adapted for stage, um, and it was adapted for stage starring Kirk Douglas actually, oh. um, and in a production that actually st- co-starred Gene Wilder, which is it was a pretty great show. It didn't run really, too long. yeah. Wow. It didn't run very long, unfortunately. It was actually it was. Very well received critically, but in terms of commercially, it did, had difficulty attracting an audience. And a lot of people said that was down to the source material, because a lot of people weren't sure it was a controversial story to tell set in a psychiatric ward in the early 60s. Like, there was a sense that American culture wasn't necessarily comfortable talking about it. But Kirk Douglas, who starred in it, as, as MacReady, yeah. um, he basically fell in love with Mac- it. And- Mac- MacReady from uh, The Thing. Yes. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Um, McMurphy, is it? McMurphy, yes, apologies, yes, yes sorry. That's all right. They're, we're, they're we're stranded. Still, we're still stuck in the thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, stranded. They're, and, you know, they're both stories about people stranded in yeah. locations, forced to work together, unable to trust one another. But there is a sense that... Um, What's the alternative ending? You know? <laughs> in this version, um, is Scatman Crothers and Jack Nicholson sort of shimmying together in the ruins of the, the psychiatric ward. So Kirk Douglas, who starred in the adaptation, starred in the stage adaptation, fell in love with it. And he was willing even to take a pay cut. He was willing to work below uh, minimum wage in order to keep it on stage. But some of the other actors weren't, so it got canned. But uh, Kirk Douglas sort of fell in love with the, the story and wanted to do a screen adaptation of it. Um, now, this took a long time to get off the ground because they had to look for directors. They had to look for writers who would get it done. That's why Michael Douglas is actually listed as a producer on this. And in fact, Michael Douglas has an Oscar. For the film, he received one of the film's Best Picture Oscars oh. uh, for his work on it. Because he basically took up the ball. He said, Dad, give me the ball. Let me run with it. Let me sort of, like, let me take charge of this and make okay, this Okay, Michael, <laughs> I've got to give you the ball. Yeah. Um, and I love that one I of the I don't know if that was that anything was like Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas. <laughs> but I, I love that one of the first things Kirk Douglas did on, sorry, Michael Douglas did on being given this beloved prize of his father was to say, okay, by the way, you're not playing McMurphy anymore. Because by the time they got round to producing, it was ten years later, and Kirk Douglas was too old. Apparently, he didn't feel that way, but it was it was we're, felt that way. Yeah, we're we're going to have someone who also looks older <laughs> than thirty eight, yeah. but um, but not that old. Not that old. So they got Milos uh, Forman, who directed I think the Fireman's Ball over in Czechoslovakia, to do it because he'd done movies with ensembles um, about sort of like eccentric groups of people, and they basically set about making the movie. Um, and, and the movie is, was released in 1975 and I think it's it's a very 70s movie in, in, in many ways even though it's clearly it's based on a 60s book and it's set in the early 60s it kind of feels like it belongs to a piece with the with films like around the time and I love that Jack Nicholson is a touchstone for all this because I'm going to say like so Jack many of them. Yeah. he is in so many of these sort of films because it taps into that same sort of anxiety about authority that kind of really came out in the late 60s and into the 70s and obviously led up to Watergate which happened the year before this, where there's this sort of question about how society and how people in positions of authority treat those people under them and how they sort of like, how they abuse that power and how that's, cor- you know, corrosive and how, you know, people lose faith in, in authority and institutions. And I think that it plays very well as part of that. Yeah, it certainly does. Because I, I, I suppose the 
the assumption before this had just been that the authorities know, what they're know doing. better. Yeah, um, and and we implicitly trust them, and we've no reason not to. I mean, that's their job, right? Yeah. Um, and and there is there's this sort of it really taps into that sort of seventies anxiety about. Like society sort of falling apart about this idea. Maybe, maybe I'm caricaturing it a little bit, but that's how it seems from our eyes looking back. Yeah, when we look back at the 50s, which was like the yeah. post-warrior, Eisenhower was like building roads and everybody was making lots of money and everybody was wearing suits and had like gel in their hair. I know that obviously you had stuff like Rebel Without a Cause and you had sort of stuff like, you know, the, the 60s sort of waiting to happen, this sort of youth rebellion waiting to sort of break through. But there was this sense of like, everything is fine in the world and we trust people implicitly to run the country because they won the second world war and we're really just enjoying the spoils of that yeah we we as you say the last schedule movie we did was north by northwest and there's a lot of trust of um handsome white men in suits and hats yeah um carrie carrie grant would never betray our trust <laughs> Uh, but there is, there is that sort of sense. I mean, but I would argue that even in North by Northwest, you can see a little bit of that skepticism creeping in with the portrayal of the CIA and the FBI and stuff. But yeah, you're right that there is this sense of, well, he's he's, he's a, he's a well-groomed white man in an expensive suit. What could he possibly be up to that would be untrustworthy or uh, would give us pause about, you know, taking what he says at face value? And like, I think that maybe that's why this movie resonated as well, it? because it was famously... The highest grossing movie of all time. Well, okay, first of all... What, what, what? It was famously the highest grossing movie of all time before the release of Star Wars, I believe. What's the one for the cuckoo's nest? Yeah, not adjusted for inflation. because I know, it's still gone a, a win, winner of Best Picture. I think you've spoken about this before. Like, Godfather was the... the yeah, certainly um, the highest grossing yeah. of its year, I believe. And also the Best Picture. Yeah. And there was this sort of sense of symmetry. Because, like, this was a film that was loved... As opposed to Moonlight. <laughs> Which is which wins all the Oscars but gets next to no yeah sort of, uh, you but know it exists. Very in few part. people saw it. It it was on the two fifty for what was the number of hours? Three hours. I Three believe. hours. Yeah. And there is this sense like there's this weird sense of disconnect that exists between like prestige and popularity now that didn't exist in the seventies where you could have films that were both universally beloved by audiences, like, could garner huge amounts of attention, could hold massive audiences in cinemas. Like, let's let's talk a little bit about this. The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was massively financially successful. Like, and, and Nicholson has talked about how proud he is of the fact that it was both critically beloved and massively financially successful. And it doesn't seem like it, it was an expensive movie to make. No, it was actually it very was, affordable. Credits were very short as well. They were, and the director, Milos Foreman, has famously joked that he was hired because he was affordable. <laughs> um, now, of course, Foreman has gone on, he's directed a number of other great films like Amadeus, for example, or The People vs. Larry Flint. Right. So it's not as if he's a bad director or anything like that, but he joked that, yeah, he was hired because he was a foreign director and they wouldn't have to pay him lots of money. And yeah, I think that, uh, he, he, it, it's it's not that you're cheap; it's that you're a very good price point. Yeah, that's your very good value. Yeah. yeah, your value is just phenomenal because you're cheap. Yeah, because you're 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 cheap, but you're good, and you're just the right amount of good. Um, In fact, you may even say you're a surplus of good. For the amount of money it would cost to hire you. Yeah. But there is that sense, of, like this was massively popular in Sweden. It played in cinemas for ten years. 
In fact, there's an electro-pop adaptation of One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which we may include in the show notes, uh, performed by a Swedish dance band in the late 80s. Sorry, dance, you know, sort of electro-pop band in the late 80s, early oh, 90s. so not like Ace of Bass. No, not like Ace of Bass. I would love to see Ace of Bass's version of One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But it really, really was. And I feel like... There are certain movies on the... that he wants. It's <laughs> another cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he won't be gone tomorrow. <laughs> no. Um, at least not physically. But I do feel like... It's interesting that it kind of made such a... Is a... the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a while. Does he lead a lonely life? <laughs> um, it's one of those movies that made a huge impression on people at the time. And I feel like maybe... Because this is a movie I like it a lot. I think it's very well made. I think it's fantastic technically. I think... like. It's a movie that's very hard to fault, but I do wonder if it's one of those movies. I can't. I can't really justify it being like number sixteen on the list. It's Not hard can to I, really. But then again, like we the we saw, um, it's a wonderful life and Leon as well, which were the the the, the highest the, ones we've done so far. The highest ones we've done so far. Well, I, 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 I can't remember exactly how we felt. I, I, I. I I think similar to them, we did enjoy this movie, and we yeah. both do agree that it that it it's a great movie. We I guess we don't know if 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 it should be as high. Yeah, yeah. that'll be the thing. Like I, I do think it's massively influential, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit in the spoiler zone. And that I think it defines a lot of pop culture. It's one of those things. Like, and we talked about this in the podcast before. There are classic movies that you could almost like reconstruct from The Simpsons. Like there are films that you've like before yes. you've seen them. Before you've seen them, you've seen a lot of them filtered through the lens of popular culture. Yeah. And this is one as well, because like, I watched that Michael Jackson the episode of The Simpsons. Barney. Oh, yeah, and no, it was... Uh, was, was it Barney Gumbel? it several times, yeah, yeah. Barney did it as well. Is it the, the one where the chief throws the water fountain out the window and yeah. then throws it back in because he forgot his stuff and then walks out again? It's, <laughs> um, but it is, it's made an incredible impact and it's very well made. And I think... There are very few films on the list that can be said to have actually literally changed the world, like changed something fundamental outside of movie making. And I think that this has in that, like, One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest is generally regarded as having changed not only public attitudes towards, say, psychiatry, yeah, um, and the way that we treat people who are in these institutions, which we'll talk a bit about in the spoiler zone, but it also changed the practice of psychiatry as well. And that, like, noticeably, the use of electroconvulsive therapy, for example, uh, went down significantly and, and now is sort of marginal. It's extremely rare uh, as compared to what it would have been when the novel was written and when the film was released. Yeah, I mean, the portrayal of it in the movie is quite different to to how um, the reality of it would, would be today. And perhaps even at the time. Because in a movie, it seems to be a... a a sort of a punishment. Well, well, we'll probably talk about this a bit yeah. in the spoiler zone, actually, because, I mean, we'll probably jump right into it. So, with that in mind, I think it should be on the list, maybe not as high. Andrew? Yeah, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd put it on there. It's it's, um, it's a good movie. Out of those sorts, there were a lot of these subversive or interesting kind of novels around the time, and this is one of, one of the kind of better adaptations of them obviously i think clockwork orange is quite good as well say so i think it's 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 better and more kind of lasting and well known than say well I, people might argue with me but say the likes of catch 22 yeah, um, i think catch 22 hasn't had a great no. film adaptation it's had a good film adaptation but it's never it, had a film adaptation it hasn't really had like the this. same impact yeah, yeah yeah and there there are these there are these kind of great novels of that time that were kind of counter-cultural yeah. And some of them got the 
the real um, uh, definitive Hollywood adaptations. Of course, it's not what Ken Casey would have liked, but some some of them didn't. I mean, it's it's worth noting, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later on. But like in terms of like being interwoven with counterculture, like ignoring the fact that the Ken Kesey was obviously involved in the movement. He was involved in um, oh the Merry Pranksters. That's what it was. Ken Kesey was oh. one of the Merry Pranksters. But I mean, even uh, Haskell Wexler, who served as the cinematographer on the film, and who we'll talk about a little bit later on when we talk about like some of the production behind the scenes stuff. Uh, Wexler was while this film was being made was being investigated by the FBI and they would actually come around the set and cause both the actors and the production team to get uncomfortable because he had made a documentary about the weathermen the fa- you know the famous weathermen um, I don't. called Underground which was released at the same time they were a countercultural movement they were much more aggressive kind of like a people's liberation sort of movement they were more than the Merry Pranksters the Merry Pranksters I think were about introducing LSD to people right? Right. If I remember correctly I, what, You're looking at me uh, uh, I would have figured so, a counterculture expert Oh no no. But the the weathermen as far as I'm aware are much more sort of militant, aggressive, sort of take down society, let the revolution come sort of stuff. Right. And uh, Wexler had They felt- weren't clowning. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, they weren't clowning. And Wexler had done a documentary about them shortly before he did this film. And the FBI actually called around the set and stuff investigating. Like, it's, it's interesting how woven into the counterculture, like, this is, even in, like, mid-1970s, when you sort they, of... Like, they, they didn't get any of the FBI guys to, to... Did you like to play an extra? It's $10 an hour. <laughs> and, you know, one of them considered it. Well, actually, <laughs> they, they used real psychiatric patients, but we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on when we talk about, like, the way that it handles psychiatric institutions. Because mm. some, some of the people in the background are actual psychiatric patients and it was filmed on location at Oregon State Hospital. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I do think, like, I think this is one of the movies on the list that legitimately changed the way that people look, look at the world, the way society is, in a way that's, like, it's a testament to the power of cinema in, like, some grand sense. And I do think that it doesn't necessarily speak to me, and I think there are maybe reasons why it doesn't speak to me. I can't begrudge it being on the list. I think it deserves to be on the list. Maybe not as high. I just can't, I can't... And maybe that's just me being me, unable to look outside myself and say, well, you know, I can understand why this speaks to people. I do understand why it speaks to people, but it, for me, it wouldn't be quite as high. Yeah, I guess one one part of why it might speak to people is that, well, there's, there's this specific kind of realm in which it might speak to people in the sense that psychiatric illness is far more prominent than, than the kind of stigma around it would suggest. So it is something that touches a lot of people, but it's not necessarily something that we're very aware of or that gets spoken about a lot. That we're comfortable talking about, like exactly. And then, and then the other kind of broader kind of context that people attach to um, in it is the kind of non-conformist sort of free spirit rebellious um, so i'm surprised it didn't speak to you darren yeah you know me i was actually that's exactly what i was referring to when i said i can understand why it speaks to other people i also maybe understand why it doesn't speak to me as much but i would absolutely recommend that you watch it if you haven't seen it already it is a classic it is a wonderful piece of work it's a fantastically made film um so go watch it and then come back and join us on the other side of the spoiler zone so it's it's um, as Darren says, it's not actually ab- about a um, high school football a high team. school football team. <laughs> Spoiler zone. Um, <laughs> Damn it, Andrew. Um, yeah. All right. So Andrew, what is one flew over the cuckoo's nest about for you? Um, yeah, I, I like I I spoke a little before a bit before we came in about um, 
how maybe some people who have been touched by or affected by in some way uh, mental illness might uh, be interested in this movie but I don't I, I feel like it's a kind of an analog for a broader kind of population as I was saying and the the sense of of kind of being different and feeling judged or prejudiced for it maybe or sort of oppressed or yeah. like kept down or sort of fenced in even yeah the, that there's a very kind of that there 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 are rigid structures in the world that are that it sometimes feels like they're there to impose um their structure upon you and yeah. and that's um well, i mean in this film that even the allocation of cigarettes for example is controlled and regulated by nurse ratchet like the people living in the ward don't have access to their own smokes and that is the sound of Andrew smoking. Um, uh, so yeah, they, yeah, it's it's that it's that kind of yearning for freedom, I guess, and the resistance and the consequences that that can have for people, I guess. Now, I mean, it's it's kind of problematic now because our our as opposed to the book in in this in this movie the um it's is very much from the point of view of uh, McMurphy who is the kind of i guess hero of the movie and is the free-spirited kind of um uh, disorderly sort of like the representative of anarchy who comes in shakes yeah. up the system shows people that they don't need to live like caged animals they can be free they just have to want to be free that's a terrible Jack Nicholson impersonation <laughs> that's okay um, but yeah he's, he's the, not he's, that bad he's the disruptive element who comes in and basically te- sort of inspires the members of this community that they can basically that they don't have to live in this sort of regimented way. That they they can have autonomy. They can have freedom. They can exist out there in the world. And sort of he represents a challenge to the status quo. And he sort of shakes things up. And he connects with them. And he connects with them all in different ways. He's like he's very clearly he gets some of them to come out of their shells. In particular he gets the chief who hasn't spoken a word. Who everybody thinks is deaf and dumb to open up to him. Like, he is, he's very clearly, he is a heroic figure. Now, in the book, I remember him being more explicitly Christ-like, and there are elements of that in here, particularly in the end, where the inmates are talking about how he escaped magically, you know, he sort of disappeared, yeah. and all this sort of stuff. And there's this sort of, like, culture of, like, rumours and speculation about him. But yeah, he is very much a challenge to the status quo. He's, he's a, an almost revolutionary figure in the context of this psychiatric ward. Yeah, because I went away from the movie thinking wondering about how much how much of 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 a heroic figure mcmurphy is <laughs> and also kind of feeling feeling concerned with myself that i was also wondering how much of a villain <laughs> is 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 nurse ratchet because of course she is yeah it, it's it's um I feel like surprising nobody, I am more sympathetic to Nurse Ratchet than most people and less <laughs> sympathetic to McMurphy. This is like my Baby Driver podcast where I'm complaining that prison was too good for that rat bastard Baby Driver. But I'm like, yeah, McMurphy had sex with a 15-year-old. He should probably be in prison. And yeah. Like, yeah, he got himself transferred to a psychiatric seem, ward. Seem, as a lot of people claim as a defense now, it, it, was, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was perfectly okay in the 70s. Well, it was it, a different... Culture. It's amazing how, like, because this came up in Annie Hall as well. There's a similar sort of vibe where it's like, oh, sleeping with a 15 year old isn't really a crime, isn't? You're like, kinda is. 
Yeah. Um, there's a sort of glibness to it, and it's it's so casual. Well, let's go to the uh, fact machine. And we're back. It is. It, it turns out it is a crime to sleep with a 15-year-old. But yeah, it, it, it really, it has that sort of casual attitude and sort of brushed aside and like it's yeah, sort of like... Yeah, it's an, uh, like, and it, it's presented in a way that like, well, he technically committed a crime. But like, if you have that in front of you, could, could you could you resist such temptation? And even the psychiatrist is kind of He's like, kind of nodding. Yeah. He's like, well, was was she particularly fit? And yeah, I, I couldn't actually of, say it, but I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, I I, I understand. I get this. Um, oh, I am and, a man, and, and that is how men think, right? Yeah, I got I got in a few fights. Did he? Or, or, or did he assault people? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think yeah. Well, it, it's made clear that the, the statutory... generally, if you, if 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 you're in a fight with somebody, they're they're not prosecuting you for assault. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's also made clear that it's the statutory rape that got him in prison. It was the assault. The assaults came afterwards. I think on the back of the DVD, um, it describes him as a petty criminal. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which is yeah sounds about right. Does it? Um... But there is this element of like, and this is the thing, right? Because obviously, I'm not going to, de- obviously the way the inhabitants of the, the institution are treated is barbaric. And the film is quite correct in condemning a lot of it. And particularly like the pettiness of Nurse Ratchet, the indifference of the staff and the like smothering of any individual sort of, you know, personality for like conformity and in order to make life peaceful and tranquil and to fight resistance and sort of to crush that. Like that's all horrible and horrific. But part of me is also like, a lot of what McMurphy does and a lot of what the film celebrates McMurphy for doing is incredibly dangerous and risky and volatile. It's like bringing like a, a you know, a keg full of gasoline and a match. Like the bit where he goes out fishing with the with the institutionalized individuals, you know, halfway through the film is an absolutely beautiful, heartwarming, touching sequence. But I was watching that thinking like... Are all of these people able to swim? What happens if one of them falls overboard, even with a life jacket on? Like, are they going to be able to handle Damn it? A like, I mean, is is McMurphy like? Can he actually steer a boat? Is he able to handle the equipment in case of emergency? Like, what are the odds that something that one of them wouldn't come back from this trip if it happened in real life? Like, I understand the beauty of the freedom just, of the open sea. Just steer the boat straight, <laughs> yeah, Darren. Just point it in a direction and go. Yeah. But there is that element of like. I understand what... I like McMurphy. I understand what he's trying to do. And I think that, like, the film's making a very good point. But part of me is also, like, I understand where Nurse Ratchet is coming from, which is, like, this is a dangerous and disruptive element that you're introducing. He doesn't have a psychiatric degree. Like, he is very lucky that he is dealing with those individuals with whom he's dealing. That, like, the film's structured even so that Billy Bibbett's suicide... Like, it's very clearly a result of Nurse Ratchet's intervention and her manipulations, rather than the choice that, or anything that, uh, that McMurphy did. Yeah, and the, the, the thing, the thing about Nurse Ratchet is what, what, what makes her a villain is, is her, is her spitefulness. Yes, it's her pettiness. So, yeah, and... I feel like I need to be clear. Ratchet is a villain and Murphy yeah. is a hero, but I do feel like the film, in many ways, sort of like glosses over. She, she, she has a certain amount of professionalism and belief in her uh, the therapeutic value of her sessions and that sort of thing, but also 
is take taking things incredibly personally and and there and there's a, a huge element of, of 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 spite certainly in some of her actions she has this kind of um seemingly soft-spoken and kind of balanced and fair kind of um a, approach to things and doesn't really seem immediately like like the dictator that she's maybe being that she um, eventually sort of develops yeah. into i mean like because it is worth noting right ratchet is technically not the primary authority figure here. It's the the psychiatric, it's the doctors who have the conversation about whether McMurphy is dangerous. It's the guys who evaluate him psychiatrically. Like, basically, Ratchet is like a mid-level functionary. She sits in on the meetings, but she doesn't speak until she's consulted. You know, she's in charge of day-to-day running an operation at the ward, but she's not She's not overseeing well, she's, the hospital. She's very well regarded in the hospital. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah, I, I, I think she, she has... A certain amount of education and a certain amount of gravitas within the institution. Yeah. The fact that she's in that meeting at all, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, like she's managing a ward, which is like she's not the most important person in the hospital. Even she's very clearly she's got a level of power, but she's invested in that power. I think like she's got a she's the almost the banality of evil sort of thing, and that she's like you give a a person a level or a position of authority and you invest in them power. And basically, the fear that that somebody becomes like absorbed, and that's like the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah, and I, I mean, part of how she works so well as a villain for a male audience is because she's a woman. Yes, we should uh, talk about this. Yeah, because this is one of the things aspects of the film that hasn't aged very well. No, and there's re- a kind of a casual misogyny, and it's not something that's that's. That's limited to the seventies. I th- I, th- I think like young young girls. I I was listening to Cheryl Sandberg on another podcast talk about this. Um, I think it was the Went to Jump podcast, which is new. Um, we'll include in the show notes, actually. Sure, and she, but she was talking about how young girls get called bossy, and, and, and other words. Yeah, yeah. When men are considered ambitious. Yeah, yeah. Our leaders are yeah, and and then. Um, women going into the workplace as a as a female supervisor you're 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 either well i suppose i can't really talk with any authority on this but the 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 some of the ideas around this are either you're wrongly perceived as 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 being some kind of battle axe when 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 you're just showing the same amount of assertiveness or authority as uh, that would be loaded in a man exactly or, or you find might find yourself kind of, I guess, have this um, kind of mother yeah, maternal sort of um, reputation. Yeah, re- yeah or, or that, that's the kind of role imposed upon you. Well, I mean, that's the, I guess. yeah, I mean, it's, you don't even have to look. Again, at- I, I should qualify these kind of things by saying it's not something that I'm... Like any an authority yeah, on yeah, experience yeah. firsthand because obviously, but I, 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 I think I a lot of people listening, if there are a lot of people listening, <laughs> um, will, 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 uh, probably, probably have a have a good idea of what I mean to say. Yeah, well, I mean, I think even if you look at say popular culture, like even if you look at say, we default when we see women in authority, we default to this idea of you know it's it's she's the mother or she's the battle axe or there are certain conventions that we impose upon them that are different from yeah. how we treat men who be- behave in the same manner. There are lots uh, of bad words though that that, that 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 if we mentioned them in the podcast, we would censor. But yeah, 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 yeah that that's. Um... 
But I mean, it's a double standard that exists in all things. Like a man who is successful with women is called a lady killer or a stud. A woman who succeeds with men is called a slut or a whore. It's it's a double standard that exists in pretty much everything. Not yeah. I think as we've said a bit this year with some of the some of the entrants coming in, I suppose it's not surprising, but it's remarkable how much thought seems to go into movies this day these days in terms of um, what you could call awareness what others might call political correctness and well, I, I suppose not in every movie we did see hacksaw ridge as well. <laughs> yes. um but yeah the the um the care that goes in or the, the alertness that movies yeah. are how sensitive so they are I'm, to... I, yeah sorry I, I i i guess i'd be reluctant to dwell too much on it other yeah. than to just point out that well, i mean it, it is worth noting that the film tones down the book a lot i, I remember when I read it, and I actually dug out a copy, and, and I have some choice quotes here from Kesey's version. Um, but basically, in, in Kesey's novel, like, the the sort of the emphasis on um, Ratchet's femininity, um, and particularly the use of that femininity to undermine her by uh, McMurphy, is particularly pointed. Here's, uh, here's, here's some examples. So, for example, talking about how McMurphy disrupted therapy sessions. She would reprimand him without heat at all, and he would stand and listen till she was finished, and then destroy her whole effect by asking something like, did she wear a B cup, he wondered, or a C cup, or any old cup at all? And then later on, towards the climax, in, in the version of the attack that's seen in the film, where he strangles her, in the novel, he grabs her and he rips her uniform open all the way down the front, streaming again when the two nippled circles started from her chest and swelled out and out, bigger than anybody had ever imagined, okay. warm and pink. This, and, uh, yeah. this is not that kind of no, podcast. No, this is not there. that. Thank you. But this you is get, a family show. This is a family, family um, show, but like that's the level at which the, the novel was you pitched. You might be driving in their cars. like to <laughs> Listening to my dulcet tones. Yeah, playing it around the kitchen room table. For um, the family to discuss... Yeah. But there, there is a sense of like the casual misogyny that was in uh, in Kesey's novel has been toned down, but it's still there, and it's telling that like many of the patients um, are in the no- in the film and in the novel we, are oppressed by male by female authority figures. We, we might have a bonus episode where Darren reads some of the racier uh... <laughs> racier comments from Ken Kesey. But there is like, for example, Billy. Um, like, what drives Billy to suicide is the question: What would his mother think? You know, there's the the therapy session that McMaster sits in early That's on. So upsetting. Like I've, I've 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 found a lot of this movie very upsetting or anxiety inducing. Like where 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 they're just about to escape, escape. and towards the climax. It's fantastic. It's it's one of those great yeah, sequences because it's like the hero can be free if he chooses to be. Yeah like, he's like, like oh this won't take very long. Um, turns out Billy has more stamina than McMaster had reckoned upon. Yeah. Um, but it is. They're about to escape. He's unlocked the window. He's thrown a little goodbye party for the the rest of the residents on the ward. He's about to leave with the chief and with the two girls. And then he decides that Billy needs to become a man. Right. They, they, and, and, like all that, all that stuff as well. Um, yes, that's that's another example. Of the films. Uh, again, this is a very yeah. D- 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 I, I I suppose we can fall into. I'm certainly not best qualified to 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 approach movies in in, in From a gender studies perspective yeah yeah but um, I, I think it's fair to say it is there the film is a very masculine work yeah, it's very with, and it's without it's, dwelling on it too much because no. i yeah i suppose it, it is it is a kind of a um a product of its time as much yeah. as that is not really a defense but it is no. like it gives a context 
It's, yeah. it's not an excuse, it's context. But I mean, yeah, there it's, is... It's remarkable maybe how there's there's a lot in this movie that... that um, and Yeah. I mean, we can talk about it more. I no, don't know I if don't our audience... Are particularly best in that. No, I think we've made the point. They want us to make more kind of like... I'm welcome to... You know, I think... Um, Make more of it. Impressions. Of Jack Nicholson. Of Jack Nicholson. Or to read more steamy prose from, from Ken Kesey. It's fantastically well constructed, the film is. Like, the film is very, very well made. Like, let's talk a little bit about the ensemble. Because, like, Nicholson is fantastic. Nicholson was cast in this film off the back of his work in The Last Detail. Where Michael Douglas saw him and saw him as somebody who could convincingly lead a bunch of men. Because up until then, many of Nicholson's more famous roles had been sort of like loners and outcasts. And there's an element of that here. But here there's also a sense that he comes in and he connects with these people. And he becomes a leader among them. Yeah. And he becomes like... And it works really, really well. Like, Nicholson is fantastic. And I... Yeah. It's like The Shining. The Shining works in large part because Nicholson (laughs) looks like somebody who's on the verge of, like, going over the edge by the time the film starts. But in in One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, when he arrives at this institution, you're like, well, Jack Nicholson looks a little like he's over the edge already. And that sort of gives you a sense of how far everybody else is. I like like the idea of all of the doctors and nurse ratchet being <laughs> being in the room and saying so is he crazy and it's like um the character or the actor the character is certainly no more crazy than jack nicholson is but uh have you seen his eyebrows <laughs> yeah. just keep arching well nicholson would would famously um do things on on the set to wind the other actors up so for example nurse ratchet is played by louise fletcher louise fletcher had decided the character's first name was mildred and she told Nicholson this at the very start of the shoot. And then months went by. They were, you know, filming, whatever. And then when they're shooting the scene, when he comes back from electroconvulsion therapy, he sits down and she's like, are we ready to continue? He's like, ready when you are, Mildred. And apparently the, the reaction shot in that is Louise Fletcher's sort of reaction shot because she hadn't, nobody had used the name on set because they hadn't filmed the scene with her and the advisors yet. And it was just, it was uncanny and uncomfortable. There was a bit later on where the guy, when they're, when they're sealing the boat, the guy who plays the owner of the boat actually owned the boat. And Nicholson, for the half hour before they began shooting that scene, said, I'm going to take your boat and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to take that boat. I'm going to take the boat and you're not going to be able to stop me. And apparently he just got under this guy's skin so that by the time they were shooting the scene, he's like, I'm taking the boat. And the guy was the honest reaction of, oh, you, you are not, you, ah. That, um, that's, that harbor looked challenging. I was lo- looking at yeah. that. Yeah, the, 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 the mouth, the mouth of it gets like very close to the rocks. I'm thinking that, that must be quite shallow. Um, and quite close to rocks. And you also have to sort of steer, you have to steer down as well, because it's not like a straight line in. No, no, you have to You have to have a sharp turn out of that and then back in. Um, it seems highly impractical. Yeah. Um, and it makes you wonder how good a sort of, how good a... And you've, you've already said to, to, to the pilot, straight ahead. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> You're not encouraging him to. <laughs> but to I think to be fair, my master to... sort of um, he guided it. In. Mac Murphy guided it in. I think 
Yeah. Like he did he didn't hand that one over to Chaswick. McCready. Yeah, sorry, apologies. But he is, he's very, very good in the role. Um this film famously won all five of the big Oscars. It won Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Picture. One of only three films to have done so in the entire history of the Oscars. Really? Other film being Frank Capper's It Happened One Night, which I believe is also on the list. And the third film, which was actually um which was within our lifetime, and I think we both know. <laughs> Science of the Lambs. Science okay. of the Lambs did one to do it. Um, <laughs> Darren pointed at me for the listeners. Yeah. Like <laughs> just to keep that's your cue, Andrew. <laughs> but it, it is notable as one of the one Silence of, of the Lambs. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Um is one of the three films to have swept because it is fantastic. Fletcher is also very good as Ratchet. Like Ratchet is famously cited consi- she's consistently cited as one of the best one of the best villains of all time. In that, And I think uh, Fletcher has joked about how up until Hopkins came along and also stole their five gongs sort of trophy, she was, you know, he came along and he stole her best villain trophy as well. There's an interesting, uh, like, after Mac- McMurphy is is taken away after choking her, there's, like, a, there, there's a scene where she's wearing her neck brace and she says to... Um, forget the name of the character but it is like oh uh, let me let me see and he shows um his her teeth. his teeth and she's like oh very nice and she's kind of like there it's it's it it's Don't like you feel a better yeah and it's 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 a weird kind of like a sympathetic portrayal of like okay this is what it was like before, 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 before yeah yeah there there was there was a certain amount of um abuse of her 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 position but there's also a certain kind of like a, a warmth um well i mean i think she, with, she honestly believes that she's helping people and i think that's the key to yeah. a good villain is that they and, actually have a motivation that's tangible like i like i wonder how much she realizes that that um a lot of the um prompting and uh pushing of people in in the therapy sec uh uh, sessions I wonder if she realizes how much of that is for her own gratification yeah I feel like she's rationalizing yeah I don't think she's entirely self-aware like as far I think her perspective yeah. is like from our perspective objectively and outside we can see that she has power and she's abusing it but yeah. from her perspective she is simply using power to do the best interest to maintain the best interests of these patients I think for the most part I also think though as I've said that she does kind of go home and have these kind of wicked spiteful <laughs> thoughts uh, and laughs manically while looking yeah. at herself in the mirror and it, you know it's not actually something that's that's terribly rare in people I imagine to, that to, a lot to, of people have encountered people in their day to day existence who have that yeah. sort of mid-level responsibility but who are intent on harnessing the power that they have to make you realize that they hold that power. I I, I always find it strange to the thank thankfully it doesn't happen very often. But when kind of in 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 one's life you encounter people who seem to be like genuinely uh, wicked who who seem to have done something with 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 the. Um, Express intention of, of causing harm and yeah. suffering to other people. I mean, yeah, generally Where, people... Like, like I, I will often cause suffering and harm unintentionally by by being a doofus or, or by be, being 
uh, thoughtless or inconsiderate and kind of failing. Yeah. But it's never. You I, 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 don't do something because it causes yeah, harm. And the, the harm is a side effect. It's generally or, not like a symptom of my success. Um, that you don't oh, I've, yourself as a person based on how much harm yeah, you cause. Like I've, 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 I've finally bested um, this this person by bringing them down. I've, I've taken them down a whole peg. A whole yeah. peg. Yeah, but I do think that you do encounter them location. I think it typically happens, and I think one of the things the film covers very well is it, it happens, it tends to happen with people at a mid-level rather than a high level. I think we've all had, and I, I, I'm wary about talking this too much because I know that maybe some people who I work with um, I, you know, I listen to this podcast, I'm not referring to anybody with whom I'm working at the moment. But I think yeah, in the past, I should be clear that I'm not either. Yeah, I think in the past, I think everybody's worked a job where they've had a boss who has maybe had just a little bit of power, but not too much power, but enough power that they feel like exerting it over you. And it's generally in a low-level job. In my, in my own case, maybe some service industry stuff or maybe some sort of like work experience stuff where it's like you have somebody who basically, they're not very high up the, the rungs, but they are, you are lower than them and they sort of, they feel a thrill or they feel like they're exerting authority over you. And that maybe gives them some sense of, I don't want to say satisfaction, but it, it gives them a sense of purpose or, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, no, no there's, there's, there's definitely that kind of person. I enjoy having a certain amount of authority at times when I'm granted it, but I, I feel like it's more sort of, that there's lots of elements to it. The part of it is, is, is feeling that I, that I can kind of, help people or, or or help like the the kind of limited experience i've had like working places where i'm in kind of a, a middle uh, management position i've i've generally kind of like took the view that like i have a great opportunity for helping people to kind of meet their goals and for showing appreciation to people who don't often Receive it. Uh, re- receive it and all of these kind of um, great things there's also the the kind of egotistical um like uh, <laughs> a, appeal of not uh, of 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 feeling like you're because like taking responsibility for any kind of failures of a team but also trying to, 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 to like feeling very gratified when when when, when the team succeeds yeah. as um as if you've you you be, because you own their failures that you own their successes more yeah um, uh, I, I that's probably a bit off topic no no but yeah, I, think, they're, I think that's they're, fair they're, I think that Ratchet is not that kind of leader I think Ratchet no. is more the first type so of leader so like there's a lot there's a lot of satisfactions that can be taken from 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 being in in, in middle middle leadership and and not um, some of them are noble um, some of them are ignoble some of them can be ignoble but harmless and, yeah. and some of them can be ignoble and harmful let's guess yeah. which category ratchet falls into uh, i think the final one yeah but um and there is and i mean fletcher is is really really great in the role and it's actually she was 41 years old when she filmed it she'd retired from acting oh. um and had actually just come back to do this and she won a best actress also for it she's still like she still talks about it. she's astounded that it happened and she's like very very proud of it in fact she's actually her one regret is that because she was playing Ratchet, she existed separate from the other actors. Because we'll talk a little bit about the production of the film. The, the residents of the psychiatric ward are really, really great. It's a fantastic cast. 
Yeah. And it's populated by actors who at the time were young and established. And it's it's always interesting hearing like Michael Douglas and hearing um, Jack Nicholson talk about the cast because they're like, oh, I knew this guy and I'd heard of this guy by reputation. And they're none of the actors who you recognize. Because um, as far as they were aware, people like Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd and obviously Brad Dorif, who got a supporting actor nomination for this, they were all unknowns. Yeah, where, whereas um, the actor playing Harding was 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 relatively well known. He was indeed. Yeah, he, he was very good in this. But it, but he's not a the the same kind of name now as Christopher Lloyd of Back to the Future or, or Danny or, DeVito of Batman Returns. And, Junior. Okay, fine. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> twins. My body. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and, and even, say, Brad Dourif of Chucky fame. Um, yeah. Or Mississippi Burning, that sort of stuff. Like, the cast is really, really phenomenal. Or Vincent, even Vincent Chiavelli, who did, um, who most people will remember from Tomorrow Never Dies, from the best scene in Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, this is very embarrassing. Is oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I have to torture you if you don't, yeah? Um, but it is it's got these wonderful character actors in it who breathe such life to it I think the large part of why the film works is because even though these supporting actors or supporting characters are secondary to the battle between by the way Tomorrow Never Dies that I, I, I a lot of people really don't like that movie I love it yeah I absolutely I think adore. it's great yeah they, I, I think there were two good Pierce Brosnan Bond movies yeah. and two really bad ones I would agree with that assessment and I think that Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies work very well as a two-header. And this is where we're getting off topic. <laughs> but uh, where Goldeneye is like this deconstruction of Bond. It's like, oh my god, he's a sexist, misogynist, sexist dinosaur. You're like, okay, well you don't need to say misogynist and sexist. We get the point. But it's like this idea of like, does Bond have a purpose after the Cold War? What does a Bond film look like in the 90s? You know, how do you even make sense of this when Britain is no longer even marginally a world power? And it sort of deconstructs and picks it apart and builds this fascinating character study of a soldier who no longer has a war and has to make sense of the world. And it's very, in many ways, I would argue GoldenEye is obviously a precedent to stuff like the Daniel Craig Bond films. But after you do that, then you make something like Tomorrow Never Dies. And Tomorrow Never Dies is, to my mind, a fantastic Bond film because it's such an unapologetic traditional Bond film. So you have like this deconstruction of Bond in GoldenEye and then you have this reconstruction in Tomorrow Never Dies where it's like, oh my God, there's going to be a war between China and the UK and the entire world is terrified of this concept. Yeah. Oh my God, there's going to be like a torture guy and a henchman and there's going to be like people walking up walls and it's going to be shooting in Hong Kong because it's sort of like vaguely got this British sense of empire in a way that's kind of so quaint it's almost cute. It's and the, like some of some of the criticisms that people have of it, like the the payoff for um, the the villain is it Christopher Price? No, it's uh, uh, it's Jonathan, Jonathan Price. Price. Jonathan Price. Sorry, sorry. I, 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 I do love. A... I do love that, that <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. Like Pierce Brosnan. Like as much as people joke about him being a lighter and fluffier Roger Moore style Bond. Like let's look at how he dispatches his villains. In Goldeneye, he drops a satellite. He he grabs. A, he drops a man to his death and then drops a satellite on him after he's defeated him. In Tomorrow Never Dies, he throws an OAP into a paper shredder. Um, in what is the the. The one, uh, the world is not enough. He shoots a an unarmed woman at point blank range, and then makes a cold one liner. Like Pierce Brosnan's Bond was pretty cold. It was close to the Timothy Dalton. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So, but um, but with one liners, the, you miss me. The, I never miss. I guess the, the, we should move back. But the last thing I'll <laughs> say is 
people people take umbrage with um the 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 reason for all of this um uh, for for Jonathan Price's did I say it again? I no, no I said it right this time. Right. Yeah, the price is um, right in this case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, he 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 wants what is it? Uh, a one 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 hundred years like um, uh, monopoly on like uh, Chinese television like rights. Uh, yeah. Rights. yeah. But it would like be probably what what a lot of people consider the best Bond movie ever, Goldeneye. He wanted to irradiate all of this gold, so so <laughs> that his gold. gold yeah. Sorry, did I say gold, Goldeneye? Said Goldeneye? I did. Goldfinger gold is the one where he wants to irradiate the golden fox of Fort Knox. The man with the Which golden is very finger. Clever. Yes. Yeah. I actually thought that was a very clever Bond villain twist. But uh, like, it's a kind of like a convolution. It's like what? <laughs> Your That's plan is what? to break into Fort Knox, go to all this effort, and yeah. just irradiate it slightly. Yeah, um, so that your goal is worth more. But um, economics, baby, economics. Yeah. No, I actually just, I also think it's only worth more because we say we agree that it is. Yeah. <laughs> if if <laughs> if the world got together and basically confiscated your gold, it would be worth less. Yeah. To you, but I do like that. Um, like I absolutely, I like that. I think tomorrow never dies is aged very well as well. <laughs> yeah, I know this is a Bond podcast, but I feel like the idea of Rupert Murdoch, oh, James Bonding, yeah, Rupert Murdoch basically starting a war between the UK and the rest of the world, um, with, over with newspaper headlines, seems a lot less funny like post Brexit uh, than it does than it did in the late nineties as well. So I think that's aged quite well as well. Mm. But anyway, back to One Flow <laughs> the Cookie's Nest um, and Vincent Chiavelli. Um, we'll, we'll put a note in in the in, in the show notes, like <laughs> the Bond talk between minutes. Yeah, X, yeah. Y, and Z. But I mean, the cast is is really really phenomenal. And I mean, yeah. um, even stuff like Brad Dorf got an Oscar supporting Oscar nomination for his work. There's some Scatman Crudders here as well. Yes, um, and it really is. It's it's really really great. I mean, even if you look at the supporting cast and the extras, like Michael Berryman, who many people will know from the hills of eyes right um who i actually i i, I paused and i really hate when people do this um but i did it so i apologize andrew that's i paused okay. and went back and went back i was like yep that's him exactly and i feel disappointed because later in the later in the movie there's a lot more close-ups of him so yeah. i just waited and actually seen but <laughs> well i i i also called uh, called for some pauses and rewinds to, to see and that's a that's a stuntman right Oh when, yeah, where, when, where Mac Murphy makes his sort of daring escape. The funny thing was there was no stuntman in the credits, uh, so either the stuntman was uncredited or Jack Nicholson <laughs> was such a good actor that he changed his face while performing his stunts. Or, or, or was just him. <laughs> it might just have been him. Um, but there is an even there's a little cameo from Angelica Houston as well when they're coming back into the Bay of Death. That's right. Um, there's a very quick shot of her as well. So yeah, there there is like it's a fantastic um, ensemble. But I mean that's. Talk a little bit about like the the movie's handling of say the institution because it was shot at Oregon State Hospital. It was actually shot on location in a state institution. Okay, which is interesting because I was if I was working in an institution and they said we want to film a movie here, I'd be like, okay, let me read the script. Want to see how you portray our institution in this script? And one more question: uh, <laughs> How much money is this? <laughs> Are you willing of, to pay us? Is that uh, kind of um, joke about the? I, I suppose I can't tell it on this podcast because there's <laughs> lots of bad words in it. Yeah, they, but, these 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 people tend to um, tend to you know want a bit of money. I, I was I was listening to um, Paul Shearer talk about David Cronenberg's appearance in uh, Jason uh, X. He appears in David X. 
Yes. Wow, yeah. I did not know that. The the the, the movie that killed uh, Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, well, until the latest reboot franchise. Has there been a reboot? There will be a reboot. There's been lots of talk reboot. Apparently, Fuller was attached at one stage to do a reboot of it. Oh dear. Yeah, I know. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So yeah, Cronenberg was in Jason X. Yeah, but um, Paul Shear's kind of response on it was like, he was probably he probably knew the guy who was making the movie, and he was offered a lot of money. And he was making the point that like he he did um, Piranha Tree Double D, yeah. so and and he didn't like ask to read the script or anything. It's just like yeah, what's the check on this? Exactly, yeah, what's the money like? I mean, okay, that's maybe fair. It's also worth noting that the doesn't seem like a big budget movie though. But no. may, maybe it's a lot of money for a. Um, well, it's worth noting that several of the doctors who appear over the course of the film are actual doctors as well. And yeah, the institution and there's I that kind of came across. Yeah, you mean that they weren't actors or that they, they weren't? Yeah, that they, that they weren't actors, yeah. perhaps. I mean, and there's also the case that some of the inmates who appear in the film, not only the featured ones, but in the background, they are actual inmates as well. They're, it's not inmates, sorry, residents, apologies. Part of the 18? Um, I believe some of the 18 in the background, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's also worth noting that when they were filming, uh, Milos Foreman came up with the idea of basically having the characters who play the residents living together working together, rehearsing in the space together, and also even working with the institution itself to give them a patient a shadow. Apparently doctors sat down and determined what each resident would be suffering from, what their affliction would be, and paired them with a resident who had a similar condition in order to allow them to basically to get a sort of a sense of how they would behave. Milos Foreman also stayed on set, but not not because he would be performing in the movie and it would aid his performance, just because he he wasn't paid very much for it. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't have enough to pay for a motel. Yeah. But apparently Louise Fletcher was really disappointed because she was left out of this. And apparently uh, Nicholson was obviously left out of this as well because it built camaraderie between the residents as they existed. So by the time uh, Nicholson arrived... Were Candy and... uh, (laughs) Uh, did they get to they were kept separate I think Um, okay I don't think they they were sort of partnered with anybody no but uh, yeah so the idea was that Nicholson arrived on set and discovered that these actors had basically been living in character like I mean a lot of the group therapy sessions for example are shot they're shot with multiple cameras so that you could get live reactions from people and they were done on sort of an improvisational basis as we discussed that at the start of the podcast where he would throw out suggestions for conversations and so they would have back and forth and the the actors would basically stay in character throughout and a lot of the stuff is and, and he mentions this on both the commentary and in the making of where a lot of the stuff that, a lot of the more interesting shots a lot are, are naturalistic, are a result of like the actors doing something and him deciding to keep it in the picture. So for example, there's a scene where they're going fishing and uh, Vince Chiavelli, like when they're putting the hook through the eye of the fish, the eye comes out. Yeah. And he sort of fidgets with the eye and tries to put it back. According to Chiavelli, this was him as an actor, having never gone fishing before, like thinking he'd screwed it up horribly and trying to put the eye back where he thought it belonged. But because it fit the innocence of the character because it was such a nice little shot it was included uh, in the final cut of the film which was quite nice as well yeah it was like uh, Vincent great job portraying a mental patient (laughs) it's like uh, thanks. Yeah, I love Chevelli's commentary on this. Is basically when he showed up to the ward with all the other actors, he's like, "These guys look crazy. What am I doing here?" <laughs> um, 
Yeah, there, there, there's like a lot of uh, mis misfit toys. Yeah, the, field yeah. Well, I mean, like you got to keep in mind that a lot of these are character actors. Like, yeah. you got to keep in mind that, like, after this, <laughs> what they weren't leading man. <laughs> Surprisingly, well, I mean, like, obviously they all look like Robert Redford. <laughs> yeah, um, be, I would love to go to a, a psychiatric institution where all the patients look like. Or it's Redford. like Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah. And that's their job is to break out of the institution. But yeah. I mean, because if you look at where the actors went, like Lloyd obviously went on to back the future but he's also a Klingon in Star Trek 3 if you look at yeah. Brad Dorif who was Chucky a lot of Star Trek actors here he was very committed Klingon in uh, Star, Trek S- Star Trek 3 he um, he was the first actor to to learn Klingon because oh. it had just been developed it wasn't been mathematically developed yeah and he had he had, he had made he had made a mistake in, in one of his Klingon lines and and like after they yelled cut he was like oh sugar I've I've <laughs> I've messed this up and and, and go back. yeah yeah we've <laughs> got to go back and do it again and the kind of director looks at uh, linguist Nemo, by the way. Uh, yeah yeah and uh, uh, says kind of like do we do we need to and the the linguist actually said no 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 that's that that's fine and basically the mistake that Christopher Lloyd made in Klingon was incorporated into, into the, the structure of the language well, that's so that you could um, I think it was something like you don't need prepositions or um or articles <laughs> in certain cases where the context is is clear. yeah well i mean that's the wonderful thing about the wonderful thing about klingon is klingons are wonderful things but that uh, the klingon language was retroactively developed from snippets that have been heard before like it was reverse engineered which is fascinating. yes and so, and and then there was there, there was also a thing about the again we're getting off topic yeah. uh but there is the thing about there is there is different ways of structuring a sentence with the with the verb the object yeah. and and I think there is maybe four or five different different um, permutations of ways you you can you can structure the parts of a sentence. So obviously with Klingon, they went with the the most unusual. Yeah. Because that that you know because it's an alien backwards. language, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but anyway, back to talking about the film in terms of its uh, the film we're actually talking about, which is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. In terms of its portrayal of psychiatry and in terms of its portrayal of institutions, I wonder if like part of the reason and you talked you alluded to this before, part of the reason why this film doesn't speak to me is perhaps because I've never really felt a rebellious urge. I, like I'm, I've always been sort of trusting of authority and sort of trusting of society. And I like the idea that society exists. I don't think it's perfect, but I don't think it needs to be like burnt down and demolished. There's a very strong anarchist streak running through the film, I think. Yeah, and that maybe like appeals to me. I'm I'm quite happy um, in, a, in, in a lot of ways living in a world in which it's structured. I'm, I'm quite kind of like realistic and I'm not very revolutionary but i think politically i am an anarchist and 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 but i i i think we we live in 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 a functioning sort of democracy where 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 people are represented to an extent where there are ways in which it could be better but there are, there are institutions in 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 which yeah. which 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 have legitimacy and all of those sorts of things so i have no kind of wish to but but yeah they're, they're like like i have own kind of personal political beliefs that i i i don't think it would be appropriate to ever impose upon other people but yeah that i do have this kind of anarchist or rebellious um uh, uh 
Because there is. There's this sense in... Sorry, that's just trailed off. There's this sense <laughs> in, in sort of McMurphy's sort of attitude and the way that he talks. Like, There's a wonderful scene where he discovers that all a lot of the patients on the ward are committed voluntarily. Yeah. And they're basically they're trapped within this structure that they don't want to be trapped in where Ratchet takes their cigarettes away from them and rations them. Mm. And, and McMurphy can't understand this, why they would choose to live like this, why they've committed themselves to it, why they would fence themselves in, why they wouldn't just break free and run and leave, and why they don't have the courage to do that. Yeah, that, that, that's the... Um, one, of, one, of, one of the interesting things is that a lot of people feel like they have to do certain things, and there's, there's very few things that people have to do. Um, so much of it is 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 self-imposed, or it's just kind of consensus, or our like, expectations. Yeah. yeah. So, like things you have to do: eat, you, sleep. No, you 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 only really have to die and and take up space. That's what my father used to always tell me. Um, so yeah, all of those things like eating and sleeping are 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 are, are choices. The only the only thing that's certain is death. Is, 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 is uh, pain just weakness leaving the body, Andrew? In this the, weeping and wailing valley of sadness in which we live. No, I, 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 I think it's a kind of a liberating belief that 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 actually everything you uh, by by living by living in this in in the world and by uh, playing by the rules, you are consenting to the the order of things. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and I think the film sort of captures that very well, which is the sense that, like, people live in society, and because I think that the, the ward is very much a metaphor for society at large, like, and it's something that these people have bought into, and it's something that, like, represses them and boxes them in in many ways, shapes, and forms. Like, there's a recurring suggestion that uh, some of the characters may be there because they're they're homosexual. There's the, the chief is there. There's no reason why the chief is there beyond the fact that he's a marginalized min- minority. Like, but there's a sense that everybody... Is complicit. Yeah, why is the chief there? Yeah, it's it's he's, never made entirely he's, clear. He's he's understood to be uh, deaf and dumb. Yeah, but um, he's he's not. He, but it's that, that he's, he's but is that a reason for? I I suppose if, if 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 it's a because some people um, like in um, in that uh, Robin Williams movie happenings like there are some people who have kind of catatonia or who um, who can't speak or who can't move or. Or who are um, kind of uh, suffer from tics or that sort of thing, but if uh, if the chief's condition is psychological, is that is that enough reason for even then for for him to be committed? Yeah, is there? I'm trying. To... I mean, I w- I wouldn't be surprised if it was, if it was. Like, I mean, like there there committing people has always been a politicized act, and I mean, like Foreman has talked about like as somebody who who grew up in Czechoslovakia like part of what appealed to him was that it was a universal story but it spoke to something he recognized of Czechoslovakia in there of this sort of like the state and there are the stories about like dictatorships that would um, I mean obviously Nazi Germany or, or the Soviet Union I mean even the United States where you would commit people who were different for no reason than the fact they were different for because they were gay gay formerly being classified as a psychiatric disorder you know yeah for being disruptive in a way that wasn't necessarily violent towards themselves or others but was deemed aggressive to society i mean you know there, there was this culture and I, I don't know if it there still is I, I would hope that psychiatric institutions have gotten better and i think may i think they have but i'm, I'm yeah. not sure if they're perfect I, th- I think maybe a misunderstanding is, 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 is sometimes which which i probably had myself was thinking that that uh, electroconvulsive therapy was a barbaric 
relic of of some uh, bygone era, which is, which is not the case. It's it's a um, it's a treatment for, as I understand it, for certain people for whom medication doesn't work on its own. Okay. But that but that, that it, it's not. Um, the film that it's more limited, kind of in 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 um, in the in the amount of people it's administered to. So if 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 a person were 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 to go to to a psychiatric hospital, they wouldn't necessarily expect to receive to, electroshock. To, yeah, but, but 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 they could if it were appropriate to their. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it so is it's a, not something that's that's just been completely phased out, like. Okay, I didn't I didn't realize that because I mean there is a lot of material in in the sixties, and I think I imagine it's largely inspired by this because the portrayal of electroconvulsive therapy on this is like in the Butcher Boy as well, and yeah, yeah. or even in Mad Men does it for example with the, the woman with whom uh what's his name the the slimy guy, anyway whatever his name is has the affair with. Right. Um, she's committed and she goes through electroconvulsive therapy as well. Like, there's a sense that it was something that was widely used. And, I mean, when the film came out, uh, psychiatrists protested it. They thought it was a horrific portrayal of the practice. They thought it was monstrous and it made it look more violent and more aggressive than it was. But it did apparently have an effect in reducing the use of electroconvulsive therapy. And one of the reasons why it's a lot less common today is in large part because of how it was portrayed here. The the same with it's optics in part, um, yeah. I, I I mean, but I'll I'll also like if if a person doesn't require it, they shouldn't have to undergo it. Yeah, and I mean there is a sense that that even with like lobotomies, for example, which is which is which are used in the film. Like the the, the final reveal is that McMurphy's been lobotomized. Yeah, and and that's treated as having effectively killed him to the point where the the chief smothering him with a pillow is portrayed as an act of mercy. Like right. those, those were barbaric. I would argue those are barbaric acts. They're like they were, they trace back. You look at the history of lobotomies. They were developed at the end of the 19th century, originally on animals and then sort of carried over to psychiatry in the early years of the 20th century. And they've sort of, again, this is something that has been in, in part credited. To. I don't know how much it, it is actually a result of this film, but it has been credited to this film for basically making lobotomy something that is unpalatable and unacceptable and on completely out of the bounds. Yeah, like the the the, the separation between philosophy and psychology only kind of happened between the kind of mid to late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century. To the extent that there was a lot of discussion in the kind of philosophy of science around whether psychology and psychiatry and kind of Freud and Adler, whether it was properly speaking science or pseudoscience. So the 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 authority that we gave people, these professionals in a, in a rather immature um, field. field to re- remove parts of people's brains or, or to to. To have people like sh- share their kind of um, personal secrets. Yeah, yeah. They, they, there, there, is like there. I mean, there for is- for for sure, it kind of op- op- opens people up to a lot of um, uh, dubious or, or or even like charlatanism, like. Yeah, it did. It, I, I, and I mean, like obviously. The field as it is now has evolved a great deal. I mean, like one of the yeah. things is we are recording this in November. Um, I don't know when we're releasing it, but you are you're actually raising you're doing November, um, I believe. Yes. Which is is a 
tradition every year where people sort of raise money and raise awareness of issues around men's health. And I, I'd always associate it with prostate cancer. But you mentioned that you you were also doing it for psychiatric health as well. For sort of well, like yeah, sort of yeah. One, one, one of the... Um, so the context that people will be most familiar with Movember is in relation to men's cancers. So yeah. pr- prostate cancer and testicular cancer. But it's also... Um, more broadly speaking, it's a it's a foundation that um, is concerned with men dying younger than women and there being a, a health crisis in men's health. Um, and another part, a huge part of that is suicide prevention. Yeah. And, and, and another part of it that's more recent is physical inactivity. That's kind of the, these four pieces of, of, of the Movember the Foundation's yeah. work. And the 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 thing the thing that I suppose unites discussion of prostate cancer and testicular cancer and suicide prevention is they're they're all kind of stigmatized issues that we don't really talk about as much. And I, I think we've done a very good job of raising awareness and getting women engaged uh, um, in cervical and breast cancer checks and that yeah. there's probably well, you have the ribbons and stuff like that exactly you have the checks you have yeah. that go around the country and stuff so yeah it, it, it it's um part of their work is to do with kind of identifying the the issue of 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 suicide prevention and of psychiatric health and well-being yeah because what i was talking about in relation to this film because i was thinking this film in some ways like destigmatized a lot of this because there is still there is still stigma around men talking about psychiatric about people in general talking about psychiatric health yeah like i i i i i tend to be comfortable enough uh, talking about that sort of thing i don't know how comfortable i'd be on a podcast yeah but uh but yeah in in general i think it's an important conversation to have uh, the reason I wouldn't talk about it on on a podcast is that nobody would hear. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, think, uh, I, I, and I think there's something to be said for that because I mean there is an argument to be made that like everyone's already asleep by now. Right, by this point, <laughs> yeah. it is a great let's go to sleep podcast. Uh, I feel like we need to be more soothing. We need yeah. to have more ooh sounds. We need yeah. to be less enthusiastic and energetic. I, w- I was telling, I was telling. Oh, Dar- I was amazed to discover this. This is why Andrew is the podcast expert. <laughs> he sent me on a link. There is a podcast that you listen to that you are actually designed to fall asleep to. It is like scientifically designed. They put all the advertising up front because that's when you hear it. And the idea is you put it on, listen to it, and you fall asleep. This was revelatory to me. Yeah, this this is um, sleep with me, and it, it was it was mind. it was an episode I thought Darren would like because it, it's 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 him subject. talking about the next generation, yeah. a a fistful of datas. Yes. So, which is a classic. Yeah, but I, I I I was wondering, should we? I'd 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 be interested. We we're 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 on Twitter. People pe- pe- people can us reach us under two fifty. Should we be leaning into the yeah, the sort of the fall asleep listening to us? quality of our podcast should we talk very slowly we we'd jack. probably need to 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 speak a little louder jack nicholson <laughs> yeah is very good hello hello in this and movie welcome to the 250 yeah and so on and so forth yeah i feel or like do we need to to put more energy into it yeah and just we, sort of get we, it going yeah um, what's up dorks yo check it uh the 250 is here with your weekly breakdown breakdown I feel like we need to do more breakdancing even though the audience can't hear it I feel like yeah. the energy would come across very well but I do feel like I 
really think that like in terms of like films that have made an impact and I wonder if the reason why it's it's ranked so highly is aside from like tapping into that like 70s anxiety about society and sort of like resonating with people who've always because this is like in many ways the One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is basically a prison break movie Right. In that it, it's fundamentally a story about a guy who's... It's a very inept prison break movie. Oh, it is. Where it's a very easy prison to break out of. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Mike Murphy they fails fail to do so, yeah. Yeah, there's a wonderful... As, as you pointed out, the wonderful anxiety-driven sequence where they have the window open and they can leave, but they so choose So easy. Yeah, Andrew was sitting there on tender hooks for that entire sequence. It's just... It is beautifully constructed. And it's, it's a wonderful, tragic story beat because it's a moment where a character can make a decision that will save themselves but doesn't and pays horrific consequences. Because, I mean, like, if McMurphy hadn't... If McMurphy had left, right, Billy would never have slept with the prostitute and Billy would never have committed suicide either. Yeah. And McMurphy wouldn't have been lobotomized. Now, obviously... Billy being committing suicide was not McMurphy's fault. It was Ratchet's fault for the way that she pushed his buttons. But I do feel like... There's what makes it so effective is the happy ending is within the graph, and even when you're watching, even if you haven't seen the movie before, like you know that this 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 is a happy end. This is an opportunity for an ending where a minimum amount of people get hurt. Yeah, and you know when he stalls and when he waits that this movie is not going to give you that ending. It's oh, a withholding yeah. movie. It's going to give you this horrible... Poignant, tragic movie rather than <laughs> as a happy, uplifting movie. And this is actually it because. Let's talk about this in terms of it being a prison break movie. This is a much better prison break movie or prison movie than the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, yeah, well, careful. Yeah. Careful, counselor. Um, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll allow it, but... Because um, I was thinking about this while I was watching, because I mean... This, this, is, this is the 250. Um, uh, and the Shawshank Redemption is objectively the best movie of all time. Thank you very much. Right. Darren likes... Shawshank, he just doesn't like the redemption. Yeah. What what Darren liked about this movie was there was that, no redemption. Yeah, yeah. That, was the bleakness of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, because because that's what I really liked. Because what I didn't like about Shawshank, what, what and we'll talk about this when we talk about Shawshank on the podcast, is the Shawshank redemption felt sort of trite and cliche and and easy and unearned in many ways for me. And what I really liked about this movie is this, this is the thing, Darren. You you um you have you have this kind of um, these very well loved movies like Shawshank Redemption and especially Forrest Gump. Are, 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 and Cinema Paradiso. Yeah, well, um, I'd, I'd say Cinema Paradiso to a lesser extent cause, because it's a foreign language movie and it's less kind of a... Beloved. Uh, yeah, yeah, where, where they, they've kind of become these lightning rods for your... For your my, yeah. my crazy opinions on them. But I feel, I feel I like... I don't know. No, what I mean, I, I like... I, they're well Considering you like Spielberg, generally. I love Spielberg. Yeah. And, and I don't and, like Kubrick. And, or like, and I, his... Yeah, and that you don't like Kubrick, exactly. And 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 that Spielberg, as opposed to Kubrick, has this kind of, like, schmaltzy yeah. quality. Um, yeah. Where it's a, and I, I think that's an interesting point, because, I mean, I... What I like about One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is how it commits to its bleakness. Like, it's very clear from the outset that this is not going to end well for anybody. Like, there's... Like, and even though there are moments where McMurphy could, could you know, things could go easy for McMurphy, but he screws it up. And, like, what I really like about One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is the sense that, like, McMurphy, 
a lot of McMurphy's downfall is his own doing. Because he makes a point. He puts himself there. He does. He, first of all, he yeah, he arranges for himself to be committed to the psychiatric institution because he thinks it will be easier. Mm. Second of all, he sets out to antagonize Nurse Ratchet because he doesn't realize that she basically holds the key to him getting out. Yeah. He still believes that he'll get out after 68 days or whatever. Uh, but it turns out that she will have final say. He doesn't realize this and so he antagonizes her and that means that his stay becomes indefinite. And then even when he, you know... He, see, he seems to imply to one of the orderlies, it's like, I'll see you on the outside. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and rape him? Uh, I, I didn't know what he was trying to kind of... Um, convey. He's like, um, I've, I've been convicted of both assault and rape, so... Um, Pick one. Yeah. But I, yeah, McMurphy is not a nice guy, but I like that he's, not he's nice also guy. not a nice guy. I also like that he's not as smart as he thinks he is, which is one of the things that I quite like about the movie's sort of countercultural aspect. <laughs> it, right? It's sense. like, uh, it's like where there, um, where somebody has uh, seen something on television or, or in a, or in a play and it's like, oh, um, I can't testify if I if I'm if, if I'm, I'm married. married to the person, or I can't be convicted for the same crime, crime twice. twice, or, or, or so I might as well commit two murders. <laughs> yeah, there's there's that there's that uh, yeah there, there's that movie. Um, Double Jeopardy what, with uh, no, the, um, uh, so I already, so I married an axe murderer. Oh yeah, <laughs> where where. Where the police character is like, I um um I have to uh, um what what do they call it when they just take somebody's car? Confiscate. I yeah, there's I feel like there's another word for it, but yeah, um, and the guy driving the car is like, I happen to know you can't do that, <laughs> and just ends up driving him where he wants to go. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, there is an element of that to McMaster, which I really that's or McMurphy, which I like about the film, which is a sense that like he's nowhere near as smart as he thinks he is. Yeah. He's nowhere near as clever as he thinks he All is. All these things that that yeah, like common misconceptions. <laughs> yeah, but he just sort of runs with them, and he, like you can see that he's charming. You can see that he's got energy. You can see that he's like you can see how he would get as far as he's gotten in life based on nothing but like charm. Commandeer. But, yeah. Commandeer, that was the though. word. Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> Based on charm. Yeah. But there's a point where he just hits a brick wall. And I, I kind of like that about One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that there's a point in the film where, and it, it feels like it's a really nice metaphor for like trying to fight against society, trying to struggle against like this weight of the rest of the world pushing down on you, is that there is inevitably a point where no matter how charming you are, no matter how smart you think you are, no matter how like disruptive you are, there is a point where you will not be smart enough to get around it, where the system will eventually trap you and break you. And it's bleak and it's depressing. But I kind of like that it's there. I like that it doesn't play up the fantasy of one lone man who's smart enough and shrewd enough to sort of manipulate and get around. So yeah, he can play games. He can get a little far. He can throw a party on the ward. He can hijack a boss. But in the end, like, he won't win. And he won't win because the game is rigged in the way that it is. No matter how romantic it is to hope that he can, no matter how fantastic or how, like, charming he might be, how much we might want him to win. Like, the game is rigged, and, like, it's the nature of the game to be rigged. What I found interesting was Chief's esteem for McMurphy is, like, I I liked him because he was a free spirit, 
he believed in me and allowed me to do things that 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 nobody thought possible of me doing and also because the first time he met me he made fun of my race my ethnicity yeah um, but it's okay um, because he offered me juicy fruit yeah um. did, <laughs> like it was it wouldn't seem like a great impression to make no although i you can sort of you can see it to be fair he is the only person who talks to to chief at all hmm. he, and he and like there is a sense that he is well intentioned uh, and that he is like he's trying to engage with the other inmates like he even when he's trying to play cards you can see that he's trying to bring them in even as he's stealing their cigarettes he does seem to actually care about them even if he's not like qualified to be any sort of position of authority and even if taking them out in a boat is a really really risky and stupid thing to do a lot of in in inappropriate smoking by today's standards so in in, yeah. a, in a do you public mind if I building light up in this in this hospital ward <laughs> yeah. yeah sure no problem go for it but there there there's no food waste but there's a lot of cigarette waste there's indeed where there's a lot of cigarettes being <laughs> broken in half and then jack nicholson to demonstrate that that's not worth anything breaks another cigarette in half you don't have two nickels you got Jack yeah. um, Nicholson, but uh, sorry, why does he sound like? And then Robert he looks Lucia? at the at the camera and winks. winks. Um, well, he looks at Chief and winks at one point as well. Was there a Paul Verhoeven reference actually to complete like two fifty? Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, we have... he, they, there, there, there was a frontal lobotomy. Um, the, so <laughs> like part 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 of uh, uh, Robocop's brain. Yeah. Was was re- was was removed just as Jack Nicholson. And Actually, Starship, that, Troopers, Starship Troopers. Um, yeah, and there's a guy getting his uh, head brain blown off. Out. Yeah, and his brain well. sucked out as well. Yeah. yeah, that that was a nice save, by the way. I like yeah. that. So we're we're completing this and we're committing to this. No, I just realized now that that's another Verhovenism is is uh, brains being removed. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, really. If you take nothing away from this podcast, yeah, please take that. Uh, um, Krang, from Krang <laughs> <laughs> from what's from, from uh, Teenage Mutant, Mutant Ninja Turtles. How is he a Verhoeven? Where did you get from Paul Verhoeven to Krang? He's like a brain and a <laughs> in a little body suit. Yeah, like like um, well, in in fairness, um, uh, Robocop Two was uh, Irvin Kirshner. Ah. From um, the, the sequels, Irvin Kirchner. <laughs> <laughs> you may know him from such films as, yeah. The Empire a, Strikes Back. It and... was a bit of a step down. Well, for me, it was a bit of a step down. For you, it was probably about equivalent. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about that when we talk about The Empire Strikes Back or the Star Wars films in general. So that in mind, then, I think there's really not much to do talk about this film. Let's talk a little bit. We haven't done this in a while. Let's do the in and out chart. Ooh. It's not what it's you think. It's been so long. It has indeed. So let's take a look at what's come in and gone out of the INV 250 in the past uh, month or so, since we've last done this. I think it's been more than a month, but we'll roll with a month. Yeah. Um, so let's take a look at what's come in since last we did this. So we've had three new entries, and obviously because this is a fixed list of 258 movies, we've had three new entries uh, to make up the, the gap. Yeah. So dropping out, we've had Sholay, which is the Indian Western, actually, which I'm actually really disappointed to have seen drop out. I'm actually really, really very sad to have seen it go. It is um, the one that when we had uh, Babu and uh, Giovanna on talking about Lagan, talking about mm. Dango, um, Babu wholeheartedly recommends Sholay because it is a, a Bollywood Western or sorry, an Indian Western, basically. Yeah. And apparently it is something to behold. And I'm kind of sad that we won't get to talk about that. Mm. Um, it dropped all the way down from number 235. So it had a very sudden fall. 
Um, we also had gangs of Wazipur, which we've so seen a few times. Yeah, which uh, has on, come on in the in and out chart. It has come in, gone which out. is also, I believe, an Indian movie. It is indeed. Um, yeah, an and Indian I believe song. the third movie. Uh, which is PK, which is Amir Khan's PK. Yeah, uh, it's which also an Indian movie. Indian. So all we've said lately about how the, the 250s is uh, becoming more... Becoming it turns out there was there was there was just a um, momentary surge. Yeah, a little kind of a a, a fashion for um, Indian, Indian movies, and now it's 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 no longer. It's it's like the um, the goodness gracious me sketch where where um, as a woman is breaking up with her Indian boyfriend because like when they started going out, it was all kind of like brim full of asha and like um uh east is east and kind of uh, like yeah yeah and now the whole indian thing was over um so yeah she'd have to break up with him because he wasn't really like a fashionable fashionable ethnicity anymore well i mean i I suspect though in the next couple of weeks we'll see uh, amir khan we'll probably see them all come back in (laughs) because the gangs of wasipur has been out before yeah yeah. pk has been in and out before shole is the one i'm actually sorry to see go yeah because it's there's a question over whether that will come back again yeah maybe 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 we'll see um has um kind hearts and coronets come back no no not since last week damn it (laughs) but to make up for those three films that are gone we've had three new entries now two of them we've talked about on the podcast already we've done this just in for we've done this just in for blade runner 2049 yeah with uh jay coyle who loves everything loves movies in general i hear a lot of people on the movie call it Blade Runner 2049. Is that what we're going to call oh, it? Okay. I thought 2049, yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to call... Like, any... any Like, um... I'm fine with calling things 2002, 2005... 2001. 2001. Um, Don't call it 2001, A Space Odyssey, yeah. 2011 is when I stopped doing that. And it goes into 2012, 2013. Yeah. People will now perhaps make a... What about Space fan fiction that's ambitious but anyway uh, we also had thor ragnarok come in as well which uh, we talked about already on this but it's it's coming quite high um it's shot up to 205 at the moment when we're recording yeah. this. um the question is will it actually still be on by the time you guys are listening to this that is the question yeah but it's a so rather it's dramatic uh arc there 236 like, from yesterday it jumped 30 places almost yeah so it jumped okay darren's maths is not great it jumped we 27 were. places which is a phenomenal accomplishment. Yeah. This is one of the things where I was waiting for it to come in and it didn't come in and then all of a sudden it shot in. Yeah. It is it is remarkable to sort of see that happen. And again, this is another example of how the list is dynamic and sort of it's prone to, to releases that are coming in like on the week. It's highly likely that by the time you guys actually listen to this podcast, it will be long gone and long gone. We need long. to maybe think of a way of of favouring some of the older movies on our, on, our, on our list. Yeah. Um, I do like that when we said we do this just in as somebody has pointed out on Twitter it makes it relevant yeah the 250 is basically a modern movie podcast with occasional retro episodes yeah it's kind of how it feels sometimes but then we had another one that came in uh, which was actually we didn't cover on this just in we almost did but it had been in before it just hasn't been in since basically 2001 which is Dead Poets Society starring Robin Williams 
Um, it is, yeah, it's a film that I think a lot of people really like, and I think that a lot of people absolutely like here. It's got yeah. a lot of. Uh, I'm surprised it doesn't kind of have a um, a permanent uh, place on the list. Place on it. I, 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 I suppose maybe it's kind of considered um, a. Is it that it's a movie for men, but it, that it's a kind of a wimpy movie for men? Yeah. Um, so it's not like it, like Terminator Two gets to stay <laughs> gets on the list and be there forever because, because it has guns and glasses. Yeah. I like that you picked. A, I somehow, Andrew, I suspect you may like Dead Poet Society considerably more than Terminator Two. That's the vibe I'm getting from this. Yeah, I'd, I, 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 I do. I'd, I'd like to talk about it. Um, I suppose it. Um, I'd I'm just going to take a look at sort of similar... Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, that's what I say. I was going to look, take a look and see at the, the record of like sad... I think Goodwill Hunting teaching. is going to be up there. Yeah, so Goodwill Hunting is actually still on the list. So that sort of scratches your Boston educational itch. Yeah. Your Boston educational Robin Williams itch as well. Yeah. Um, so it's got that sort of perfect New England sort of uh, Princes of, May, of Maine, isn't it? Yeah, I think that that's from Cider House Rules. Oh, okay. Wow, that's the whole genre. <laughs> I, love that. I love that it's so much of a genre that we can get confused in making our references. Um, but yeah, I suppose actually you could argue, though, that at least Goodwill Hunting is a more macho version of Dead Poet Society, perhaps. Yeah. It's it's a bit less wimpy in that, like, you know, he's a mechanic and stuff. And Ben Affleck. He's working class. Yeah, he's working class, yeah. Um, and so on and so forth. It's not meant to be a Boston accent. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Um, yeah, that was a very New Jersey. Yeah, no, well. that's the the um, the Dustin Hoffman line from um, uh, what's um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Midnight Cowboy. Yeah, where he's like, oh, I'm walking here. I'm Christopher walking here. <laughs> I'm working class. Hey, all right. Uh, all right, so I guess the only thing left to do then is to pick the movie that we're going to watch next time. Exactly. All right, so Andrew, would you fire up the random number generator then? Boop, 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 boop. Random number, random jumbleator. Uh, jumble, jumble, jumble. Show us a... Movie that we must rumble? With. <laughs> <laughs> never end a rhyme with a preposition, Andrew. Have you learned nothing from me? All never, right. never end a sentence with a preposition on. All right, engaging the random number generator. Uh, twist, twist, twist. Show us a movie on this list. What, why did you voice code it, Andrew? Why did you have to be voice activated? <laughs> and we've landed on... Ooh, this is this is one that you quite like. Uh, it's Michael Mann's Heat. It is indeed. From 1985. I like that. It's, it's not only 2017, it's diggity five. Um, <laughs> it could refer to any decade. It's 1995, baby. It is, thank you, Andrew. Starring uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. It Number is the, 124. It is the epic crime saga, um, which is basically an adaptation of man's L.A. crime story, which he did for TV, but is... I think it's safe to say that it is perfectly within the 250s wheelhouse. Yeah. You were talking a moment ago about movies for men. Um, yeah. This is perhaps the most movie... From the most man for the most men. Um, and so let's take a look at the trailer. Although I somehow doubt that we need to have our memories refreshed. But let's do it anyway. He's here. I can feel it. You search for the scent of your prey. And then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committed to. It keeps me sharp. The edge where I gotta be. 
want to be making moves on the street. Allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Now, my life's a disaster zone because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best, trying to stop guys like me. You've been walking through our life dead. All I am is what I'm going after. From the Godfather to Scent of a Woman. What do we got? From Raging Bull to Goodfellas. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us. Their performances have created a legacy of landmark films. I want full surveillance. That's 24 hours, round the clock. We never close open seven days a week. Now, for the first time, America's two most electrifying actors collide. With this guy, there's more cheap you should pass. The bank is worth the risk. We should take it down. 12.2 million. You're up. This crew is good. It ain't worth the risks you take. Like in risk versus reward, baby. You're a fugitive number one with a bullet. I'm double the worst trouble you ever had. If I'm mad, I gotta put you away. I won't like it. But I'll tell you, you are going down. What if you do got me boxed in? And I gotta put you down. Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. I will not hesitate for a second. Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, in a Michael Mann film. I feel like one of these names is not like the others. <laughs> but it is, and we've talked about well, the Yeah, I, I, I feel like Val was like, you know what? Can, can, uh, I, like, this trailer seems to be a lot about, a lot about Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Can you just lob me in at the end there, please? Yeah, uh, how do you feel about that, Robert? Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Being not? emotive that he is. I, I like that we've talked on this. this what, are, what about you, Al? What do you think? Oh, I think Val is a fabulous actor. Oh, no, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Oh Marvelous! <laughs> oh, why does he sound oh, like Robert Lundgren? Tremendous actor! <laughs> oh God! He's got a huge tongue, <laughs> and he got his head oh, oh way up. Oh God! But yeah, you can, you can listen to more uh, ten-minute podcasts for for Al Pacino and Robert De Niro <laughs> talking to each other without like bursting into coughing or laughing fits. But it is like we talked in the podcast before about how certain trailers, like you can tell the era they were made, where seventies trailers tend to have a "this is the entire movie" or we've got no idea how to sell this movie, yeah, or we've got a voiceover that explains the concept of the movie. Nineties, well, nineties trailers have yeah. their own feel as well. This like, is very. I I feel like this is a good trailer. Well, it understands the appeal of the movie on a yeah, very quintessential because level. because I think people should be excited about Al Pacino and Robert De Niro kind of coming head to head. And I feel like the movie delivers on that. Yeah, I mean, it spoils it's, nothing to say. Like, you mentioned that I'm fond of this movie. This is one of my all-time top ten movies. Like, yeah. And I feel like that's not a spoiler. You, if you've listened to the podcast, you probably have a sense of that already. And I feel like, yeah, the trailer... Darren even has a goatee. <laughs> as, as a sort of an homage. Just to tell you which side of this debate I'm falling on. Yeah. Darren is normally a very law and order person. But, Difficult you know, thing to pull off. But uh, <laughs> some might say Darren accomplishes it. 
Most might not, but uh, we'll, we'll digress on that point. I am really, really looking forward to talking about this, and I'm really looking forward to, to figuring it out. So uh, if you pop back in next week or, or the week after, depending on whenever, uh, we'll be talking about heat. But until then, you can find us online at the 250. Um, you can also find Andrew online at... Yeah, I'd, 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 I'd probably tell you this 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 week to 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 go visit and tweet to 250 on 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 twitter it's um it's the words that 250 yeah i i I believe um are are are, are we ready to announce that we have a website well it's we are yeah yes exactly a website so you can find us on the 250.com which is also words as well yeah and that will point to a list of our our podcast basically our archives you can also find us uh, those include show notes as well because people love reading with podcasts i mean we love having reading lists with podcasts right can they email us uh, they, oh, they may be able to email us. I would rather wait until a later podcast to confirm whether or not that is the case. Ooh, but watch I, this space, people! Watch this space. You can, you can think, you, you can, you can put emails now in your in your draft folder with with um with the address unwritten. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. With uh, you, you can put in the subject line. Um, Perhaps uh, movies you would like us to discuss under two fifty people you would like us to have on. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, but don't be afraid don't be afraid to hit us up you can also find us at all the usual places like Stitcher on iTunes and, and various other podcast hosts as well and uh, you can get us on Podcast Addict which I think pretty much has has um, has have have all of the podcasts um, kind of all the podcasts yeah you you, you, you can find us as Darren says on iTunes um, and on Stitcher I think do we, have we stopped being on SoundCloud? I think SoundCloud almost doesn't exist anymore. Yes, that is the issue. Is we were yeah. about to go on SoundCloud and then SoundCloud ceased to exist, basically. Yeah. It, um, we didn't want to invest. I feel like I got a link this week for SoundCloud, though. Um, so maybe, maybe it's still around. Okay, um, well, we'll, do some, we'll make some inquiries and we'll figure <laughs> that out. But until then, take it easy, guys, and we'll see you next week. Not on Spotify. <laughs> No, not yet. Thank so, you for reminding me of my failure, Andrew. No, uh, no, no. I'm that, working on it. <laughs> I'm working very, on it. Very few things are on Spotify. But I'm working I've, on it. I've listened to like established podcasts where they're talking about, we're trying to work this thing out in Spotify. We haven't gotten there yet. I know. I'm working on it, Andrew. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard. You don't have to try so hard, Darren. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm sure that people will find it. You'll just be quietly us. disappointed. Yeah, yeah. The the um, we, 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 we want to start earning that money, though, that Spotify will bring us. Yeah. You mean the the three cent a month? Yeah, exactly. I've got plans for that three cent a month. If you invest it wisely, you may be able to afford some avocado. Yeah, and that's apparently the dream. That's what we live for now. Well, you've got the house. Uh, uh, that's I, a fair I, point. Actually, I can I have the avocado. A, I shouldn't make avocado jokes. No, um, but anyway, take it easy, guys. Bye.